Sources for this episode are a Dart Review article written by Connor D. Boehm and Jacob H. Parker, as well as a Tappertalk post written by user DG1952, and the book Judgment Ridge by Dick Lair and Michael Zuckoff. If you decide to buy the book to learn more, please consider supporting your local bookstore. All website links are available in the show notes. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Half opened the door to the friendly-looking eyes staring back at him, and after checking with his wife Susanna, gestured to follow him inside. He made his way through the hallway and to the living room, The scene was homely and comforting, with pots bubbling away, a glass of red wine half drunk and a radio playing quietly in the corner. Half arranged the wooden chair to face inwards and with a smile, asked how he could help. After a few minutes of chatting, Half turned to get a phone number from his desk. The person in front of Half waited patiently for him to turn and at that very moment silently opened the rucksack sitting on the floor and pulled out a large SOG seal knife. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 29 The Dartmouth College Murders Susanna and Hauf Zantop Hauf Zantop was born on the 24th of April 1938 in Germany. He was the fourth of six children. His father ran a printing and box-making factory and his mother was a homemaker. In order to escape World War II, The family moved to Spain when Hauf was just a year old and then a few years later returned to Germany. Hauf had always been fascinated by geology and he studied to earn a bachelor's degree in geology. Hauf was an extremely hard worker and during his teenage years had spent time working and studying in Barcelona before returning to Germany. Hauf was pursuing a doctorate at Stanford University when he met another German student called Susanna. She had recently graduated from Berlin's Free University with a bachelor's degree in political science and was also a hard-working, determined young woman. When she and Hauf met, Susanna was working towards her master's degree which she had been awarded a scholarship for. Susanna was born on the 12th of August 1945 in Germany. She was the oldest in a family of three children and a father who managed a brick factory with a mother who was a homemaker. Susanna grew up enjoying playing badminton, taking care of her cats and playing the piano. She also enjoyed reading and especially liked history books. She was incredibly intelligent and, in fact, had skipped a number of grades in school because she was so smart. She also enjoyed creative writing 
and read book upon book. Not long after meeting, Susanna and Half began dating and hit it off right away. It wasn't long before Half proposed, and in 1970, the couple got married in a romantic ceremony at the foot of the Andes Mountains in Argentina. The couple then spent a year in Colombia, where Susanna became pregnant with their first child. They had a daughter named Veronica, and just two years later, Susanna was pregnant again, this time with another daughter who they called Mariana. Hauf worked as a field geologist but had his sights set on academia as he wanted to spend more time with his family. So when he was scouted and offered a job in Hanover, New Hampshire, at Ivy League College Dartmouth, the family made the journey across the pond to begin their new life in the United States of America. At first, Susanna was happy to be a stay-at-home mother, looking after and raising Veronica and Mariana. However, she soon began to itch for some kind of academia in her life and decided to pursue a second master's degree in comparative literature. She eventually completed her master's and began teaching at Dartmouth whilst also taking on a PhD in comparative literature at Harvard University. Whilst Susanna was working hard on raising the girls, completing her PhD and teaching at Dartmouth, the equally ambitious Hauf was also working at Dartmouth whilst co-authoring a book on the economic and environmental impact of mining. Hauf really enjoyed his job and every day his students would happily turn up to class and sit in awe of this man who seemed to not only know his speciality in exquisite detail, but he was able to make the most complex subject matter understandable, even to those who didn't consider themselves scientists. His teaching style meant that the students began to think of him as their friend, whilst also having incredible respect for his expertise, and Hauf was thought of as by far the best professor at Dartmouth. Similarly, Susanna's work at Dartmouth was highly thought of, and in 1996, she became chairwoman of Dartmouth's German Studies Department. She wrote a number of books and often contributed to a number of scholarly journals, she also became known to many as a collaborator, mentor and friend. Suzanne would pride herself on being tough and always tried to push her students, but she tried to keep the classes fun and always taught with compassion and understanding. Hauf was methodical, had a great attention for detail and was calm and thoughtful. Despite his immense success in teaching, he would still become nervous before a lecture. Susanna was passionate for her work and intense at times. She had strong opinions and wasn't shy. The couple were deeply in love and complemented each other in a fashion that most people close to them were unaware of. Just a few days before Christmas 2000, Half took a trip to a jewellery store where he arranged to have a diamond set in a pendant, as well as purchasing a set of diamond earrings for Susanna. 
By the year 2001, Veronica and Mariana had moved out of their parents' home, and Susanna and Hauf were living in a three-bedroom, two-storey house, much too large for their needs. The couple decided to look for somewhere new, now that the two girls had gone to college. They were also looking for something a little quieter than the central Hanover place they were currently living in. The couple soon sold their house to Roxana Verona, who was also a professor at Dartmouth. Like many of the people Susanna and Half crossed paths with momentarily, Roxana quickly became a friend for life. Half and Susanna found a beautiful place in Etna, nearby, that had a homely feel and had space for the couple's hundreds of books. Both Half and Susanna were big lovers of art, and Susanna in particular wanted to bring her own flair to their new home. This included a number of items the couple had collected over the years gone by from all different countries, also including a $15,000 kneeling sculpture and an $18,000 still-life painting. Meanwhile, Half was happy to continue going back to the old house to fix bits and bobs that needed repairing for Roxana, and Roxana was grateful to have such kind friends living not too far away. Next door to their new house, Susanna and Half met their friendly neighbours, Audrey and Bob McCollum. The McCollums and the Zantops were living a picture-perfect outlook and life with best friends as neighbours proved to be equally as joyful. The four of them would often have dinner parties together, or beckon one another over to see the sights of foxes and wild black bears making themselves quite comfortable in the gardens and surrounding land. On the morning of the 27th of January 2001, Susanna had woken up early, as Half brought a cup of tea into their bedroom for his wife. She sat and sipped the tea, mentally planning out the day ahead. She would do some ironing, as usual, whilst listening to the radio, and then around half past eight, she would load up the computer and begin her morning of life admin. At around half past ten that same morning, Susanna invited Roxana round for dinner later on. Susanna added that she had been to see a movie, Best in Show, the previous evening, and thought Roxana would enjoy it. The two spoke for a few minutes longer about work, and Susanna said that she had a huge amount of work to get through, but that Half was going to a party, so would join them later for dinner. Roxana thanked Susanna for the invitation, and said she would see her around half past six. A little while later that morning, as Susanna was chopping vegetables preparing for lunch, she heard a knock at the door. She asked Half to answer it, and he made his way to the door. As he peered outside, he saw two teenage boys standing there. He opened the door, and one of the boys told Half that their names were Jim Parker and Rob Tullock and that they were high school students conducting an environmental survey for a class project. The boy called Robert 
asked if they could ask him some questions. Half hesitated. He knew that Susanna was preparing lunch, so didn't think he'd be able to help. He asked the boys if they would mind waiting for a moment and turned to head back inside to ask his wife. Susanna said that would be fine. After all, the two of them were teachers and environmentalists. Hopefully they would be able to offer some help or support of some kind. Half returned to the door to find the boys waiting patiently and said, quote, You know, I like what the mountain school does. Unquote. He then invited the boys inside. Robert followed Half and Jim followed behind. Half showed the pair into the living room. It was quite impressive, with hardwood polished floors, large colourful rugs and sofas facing a large coffee table in the centre. Susanna was at the stove cooking ahead of the evening dinner plants she and Half had with Roxana. She wore a black and brown jumper with tanned corduroy trousers. The scene was homely and comforting, with pots bubbling away and a glass of red wine half drunk and a radio playing quietly in the corner. Half arranged the wooden chair to face inwards, as well as moving another slightly so the three of them could sit down comfortably and talk. It was very quickly clear, however, that the boys didn't know what they were talking about. Robert had forgotten his pen, so had to ask to borrow one from Half. Half then helped Robert get back on track, probably assuming he was just a little nervous. Half said that he was from Germany and began to compare the US and Germany's approach to oil as an energy source. Half then began looking for a phone number of a friend he thought could probably help Robert and Jim refine their survey. As he turned away from the boys, Robert unzipped his backpack and pulled out one of the SOG seal knives. He quietly slid the knife out of its sheath and waited for Half to turn back around. As he did... Robert violently plunged the knife upwards and into Half's chest. The shock and incredible pain caused Half to scream loudly before both he and Robert fell backwards and onto the floor. Blood immediately began to seep from the huge wound in Half's chest and seeing this, Robert pulled the knife out so he could again stab Half in another area of his torso. He then continued to stab Half over and over again on any part of his body he could manage, including his face. The fight in Half had been knocked out of him almost instantly with the first stab, but Robert continued in haste to stab him as many times as possible. In this haste, Robert accidentally caught himself with the knife on his right leg, but he ignored the searing pain and continued the violent attack. Meanwhile, Susanna had come rushing in after hearing the screams of her husband. The moment she saw what was happening, she screamed at Robert to stop and lunged forward in a heroic attempt to put herself between Robert and Half. But Jim grabbed Susanna and pulled her away. 
he spat at her to shut her mouth and heard Robert shout for Jim to slit her throat. As Jim dragged Susanna further from Hal from Robert, he quickly lifted the knife he was holding and in one motion slit her throat. Susanna slumped down onto the floor, clutching her neck. Across the other side of the room, Robert had finished his frenzied stabbing of Half and decided to slit his throat, before leaving him and turning to Susanna. He then stabbed Susanna in the head a number of times, despite the fact it was clear she was dead or very close to death. Robert then grabbed Half's wallet and turned towards the door of the study. The pair followed the hallway leading up to the front door and made their escape. Robert's right leg was bleeding a lot from the cut he'd sustained just above his knee, and by this point, his jeans leg was soaked with blood. He limped out to the car and Jim joined him, jumping into the driver's side seat. Robert took Jim's knife and closed the passenger door. He placed the two seal knives he was holding underneath the passenger side floor mat and told Jim to drive. Jim backed out of the drive and turned the car to face the road. As he did so, Robert rolled down his window and checked to confirm that the coast was clear. Jim then began to drive down the road, going slowly, trying to keep calm. As he did so, Robert pulled out Half's wallet that he'd stolen immediately after killing him. He counted the $340 that was there and attempted to find a PIN number for one of the credit cards, but to his dismay, could find nothing. Robert threw the wallet down in frustration. This was not what they had planned. They needed more. They'd just have to think of their next target and get to it. On their way back towards Chelsea, they pulled over, turning into an area they knew well that had mounds of greenery and trees stretching into acres of forest. Both of them got out of the car and made their way by foot deeper into the forest, before stopping at a pile of snow. Robert used the snow to wash the blood off of his hands and Jim did the same. Jim then took the knives and used snow to wash the blood off of them, as well as the floor mat. But just as he was about to place the knives back into their sheaths, he realised they weren't there. Jim asked Robert where the sheaths were, but Robert didn't know. He ran back to the car and checked the passenger side, then the driver's side, and then the backpacks. The sheaths weren't there. The pair frantically searched the back seats again and completely emptied out the backpacks, but it was clear the sheaths were nowhere to be seen. They must have left them at the scene of the murders. Robert and Jim spoke about heading back to the house, but decided that before they did anything, they needed to get rid of the evidence, and Robert needed to change out his bloody trousers. They drove straight to Robert's house and Robert ran inside to quickly change clothes before jumping back into the car. They then drove to Jim's house. They pulled up at Jim's father's woodworking shack, just a few metres from the house. 
and stuffed the bloody knives into a broken down blue Volvo parked just outside. They also stuffed any other evidence, including Robert's bloodied trousers, house wallet, the duct tape and plastic ties behind one of the seats. They then headed to a Barnes & Noble bookstore and attempted to flick through any books they could find that may help them. They looked at a book called On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society for tips, but didn't actually find any information they could use, so decided to leave shortly after. With no help from the bookstore, Jim and Robert decided they had to drive back to New Hampshire and at least attempt to find the knife sheaths. They would probably be in the hallway. They could just make their way into the house, quickly grab the sheaths and leave. They knew it was going to be risky, but if they did it quickly, they could be in and out within 30 seconds. And if the police found the sheaths, there was a possibility of tracing the knives back to them. The pair drove back to Susanna and Half's house in record time, adrenaline pumping and ready to do the quick dash in and out of the house. However, as they pulled round to the front of the house, they saw a New Hampshire State Police cruiser parked in the driveway and quickly shifted their direction of travel onwards past the house. They were too late. The police had already arrived, which meant they had probably already found the sheaths. The boys decided they needed to come up with some kind of explanation for the knives. If it was discovered that Jim had bought them, then there was no use denying the purchase and instead, they agreed to say that Jim had sold them to an army navy store in Burlington. Robert was happy with this plan, but Jim was having second thoughts. In theory, this had all sounded solid, but in reality he was beginning to wonder how he'd gotten to this point. Back when Jim Parker was a child, his parents had built their own house with his father John owning and running a full-time contracting business. Jim's dad worked hard to become part of the community once he and his wife Joan had moved to Chelsea. John would coach the local teens in basketball whilst helping Joan to raise the children. Joan was active herself and enjoyed racquetball and teaching her eldest daughter, Jimmy's sister Diane, to do her hair in a way that was similar to her mother's. By all means, Jimmy had a perfectly normal and altogether happy childhood. As a young boy, he was frightened of the dark and was against hunting because he didn't like to see animals being killed. His childhood was generally happy and healthy. Robert's was a little bit different. He had two sisters and one brother, and his father had suffered from alcoholism and depression. Robert didn't have the easiest upbringing, with his parents moving around often, with Robert and his brother sharing a bedroom and sleeping on thin mattresses on the floor. 
their mother Julie was known in the neighbourhood for stealing items from neighbours' front gardens. The boys met at school and even though they weren't in the same classes, they hit it off immediately and most days Robert would head to Jimmy's house straight after school to hang out. Robert and Jim would often drive around together, planning their world travels and speaking of their superior intelligence and higher consciousness. Jim was not happy with his life. He spent his days working for his father, earning $10 an hour, nowhere near the amount he thought he should be earning. His sister picked on him and his mother didn't seem to understand him at all. Similarly, Robert hated being around his family. He moaned about how angry his father tended to be and how they didn't have any money. He didn't care too much though. He had big plans to be president in just a few years. Robert and Jim bounced off of each other and one day, After speaking about how the training to become British Special Forces Commandos would be a lot of effort, they instead decided that they would train themselves how to kill people. They'd use their skills to steal cars and essentials and eventually hijack a boat and sail to an island. They could live there and hunt animals for food. Their plans turned to the practical. What could they do right now. They began by raiding post boxes in the hope that they'd find credit cards and pin numbers in the mail. Sometimes they pulled mail out of mailboxes, rifled through it and then put it back in the box. Other times they took it from mailboxes and looked through it at their leisure. They did get a credit card number once but weren't actually able to use it. One day, the pair came across a car and decided to steal it. They rubbed off the serial numbers and painted over them and then made a plan to sell it. Robert put classified ads on the internet and someone answered the ad offering almost $3,000 for it. They arranged to meet the buyer for a test drive, but when the potential buyer asked for the title and registration, Robert said he didn't have them and the buyer said the deal was off. Deflated, the pair then discussed jumping people, robbing them for money, and then Robert said they would need to kill them. He said not only was the killing part necessary to eliminate any witnesses, but would also double as experience of committing murder, as they would probably be living as criminals in their new life in Australia. Eventually, the pair settled on a plan to get into someone's home. They would tie up the residents, threaten them into revealing their PIN numbers, and then kill them and leave. Late one evening, they decided that they would drive to a nicer area in Vermont and get to work immediately. Robert and Jim spent the next few hours digging graves for their proposed victims before driving to a secluded house nearby. Robert knocked on the door, whilst Jim hid out of sight by the side of the house. Jim had pulled the ski mask over his face and had hidden a hunting knife in one of his boots. He also carried duct tape and cable ties. 
Robert knocked on the door whilst Jim hid out of sight by the side of the house. Jim had pulled the ski mask over his face and had hidden a hunting knife in one of his boots. He also carried duct tape and cable ties. Robert waited for a few moments before the homeowner, Andrew Patty, came to the door. Robert asked if he could use the phone. He said he was having car troubles and his battery was dead. But Andrew was immediately suspicious of Robert and he was home alone with his young son, so decided to say no. Robert continued and asked for jumper cables, to which Andrew also said no. Robert persisted and asked if he could use the phone, to which Andrew again said no. The homeowner and father had no idea that Jim was hiding just metres away in a bush to the side of the house. He also had no idea that the boys had already dug graves not too far away, ready for the people inside Andrew's house. Despite Robert's persistence, Andrew didn't falter. He could tell something was seriously wrong with this situation, and at that moment, Andrew moved his gun into view. Robert saw the gun and backed off a little, repeating that he only wanted to use the phone. At this point, Andrew said he would call the local garage for Robert, to which Robert agreed but told him to go call right now. Andrew locked the door and went back into the safety of his house to pick up the phone. There was no ringing tone. He knew immediately that the phone lines had been cut. This was the year 2001, Mobile phones weren't as easily or readily available. Andrew was alone in the house with just his young son and the family dog. Andrew told his son not to worry and tried to settle him down. He then took his place in front of the door, ready for anything that might force itself inside. He pointed his gun towards the door and waited. He waited for seconds that turned to minutes and then to hours. He stayed staring at the door, with no other option than to sit and wait it out, holding onto his gun and making sure he was at full alert, ready for whatever might happen next. The late hours of the evening turned into the early hours of the morning and, thankfully, by daybreak, Andrew could see that the intruder had left and he and his son were safe. Meanwhile, Robert and Jim were long gone. They had clocked the man in the door had hold of a gun and decided that the best thing for them to do was to leave. They made their way onto the main road and back towards Chelsea. But on their way, due to the snowy, slushy ground and fast speed, they had hit an ice patch and swerved across to the other side of the road. A police car going in the opposite direction to the boys drove past just moments later. The officer turned on the indicator and pulled in beside them. Police Sergeant Jocelyn Stoll got out of her vehicle and approached the pair. She asked them what had happened and they proceeded to tell her that they'd just pulled over to, quote, take a leak. 
The police sergeant eyed the boys up and down. She noticed they were wearing all black and her mind immediately went to the flurry of home invasions that had been happening in the nearby areas. The police sergeant pressed the boys and asked where they were heading. They replied that they were on their way to go skiing. She then asked where and heard the response sugarbush, but as she looked back towards the boys, she noticed them both looking down, acting suspiciously. The police sergeant looked into the back seat of the car, but couldn't see any skiing gear, and instead spotted two rucksacks. She also clocked that from the skid marks in the snow, the car had been travelling in the opposite direction of the Sugarbush Mountain ski area. She then asked the boys for their licence and registration, which they produced, and although everything did match up, she couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. However, at that time, the sergeant was on her way to assist a quote, possible despondent, suicidal subject, unquote one town over in Rochester, and so had to leave to attend that as soon as she possibly could. Police Sergeant Jocelyn Stoll told the boys that she had to leave, but a recovery vehicle would be along to assist them shortly. And with that, she left. After this near miss with the Police Sergeant Jocelyn Stoll, Robert and Jim decided that they needed to change a few things to avoid being stopped again and also to allow them easier entry into the houses they'd so far been unsuccessful in gaining entry to. Firstly, they changed out of their all-black clothing and into more casual high school student clothing. They also switched their silver Audi and with that, the two boys, pumped with adrenaline at their new plan and new outfits, made the journey over to North Hollow Road a little over 40 miles away. Inside their bags, they packed rope and ties, as well as their prized possessions, two SOG Seal 2000 knives. These knives had been carefully chosen for their 7-inch partially serrated blade, powder-coated grippy Zytel handle, and Kydex sheath with a groove for easily cutting cords. The boys made their way onto North Hollow Road. Their adrenaline was high and the plan was clear. They passed a number of houses on the way down the road, but partway down made the decision to turn back and target the biggest house they'd seen at 540 North Hollow Road. Because of the house's placement on the hillside, it boasted a beautiful view for miles out front and an expanse of mountains to the rear. Robert and Jim pulled the car onto the driveway and got out. Smiles on, geeky backpacks pulled up high on their back. They made their way to the front door. Robert knocks loudly and moments later, 65-year-old Franklin Saunders opened the door and took in the sight of these two seemingly innocent teenage boys in front of him. Robert started the well-planned ruse and began by introducing the pair as students from a nearby high school. He told Frank that they were wanting to do an interview for the school about the environment 
and hoped they would be able to ask him a few questions to help them with their project. Frank shook his head. No. He was far too busy installing a new wave machine and actually, quote, I'm too busy, I'm tiring my pool, unquote. And with that, Frank closed the door and went back to the pool. Jim was in shock. He turned to Robert and demanded to know why he hadn't jumped the man. Robert didn't know. He just hadn't thought of it at the time and it was too late now. Deflated and defeated, the pair made their way back to the car and got inside. They needed a new plan. They needed to go somewhere else, somewhere they wouldn't be connected to and preferably somewhere they didn't like. That's when one of the boys suggested Hanover. They had spoken previously about how much they disliked the college town and it was a perfect place to go and be anonymous. The pair soon pulled onto Trescott Road and the plan that had up until this point just been words between Robert and Jim was about to actually become a reality. Less than 20 minutes later, both Half and Susanna were dead and Robert and Jim had made their getaway and were now long gone. Meanwhile, the investigation had begun at Half and Susanna's house. Officers had arrived just moments after Roxana called for help. They spent the following three days searching the house for potential evidence. Robert and Jim attempted to work out how to raise enough money to fund their great escape from Chelsea. They only had $380 from the murder, so Jim sold his saxophone, bass guitar and amp, as well as his snowboard, and then tried to sell a paintball gun of his but couldn't find a buyer. All in all, the pair had around $800, but decided instead to take their money and buy new climbing shirts and another pair of climbing shoes. After this, they had a little over $300 left. The pair planned to leave Chelsea soon after Robert had sorted the cut on his leg. It was around two inches long, and although his mother checked and told him it didn't need stitches, he decided to go to the school nurse to check he would be okay, as it was still hurting. When the school nurse asked what had happened, Robert made a story up about accidentally cutting it on a fence, but the nurse noted it looked more like some kind of surgical cut. She cleaned the cut, bandaged it, and assured Robert he was good to go. The next morning, Robert heard Jim pull up outside his house. He made his way out, got into the silver Audi and the pair made their way out of Chelsea. They drove to a bus station in White River Junction around an hour away and bought two one-way tickets to Amarillo, Texas. The pair boarded the bus and travelled for hours, but by the following day, Robert's leg had become infected and sore and they were quickly running out of money. They had told their respective parents that they were taking off for a couple of days, but by the 1st of February, both Robert and Jim had had enough. They caught a plane back to the nearby bus station and then got into Jim's car, which they parked there just days earlier. Given the events of the last few days, and the boys' parents not really knowing where they'd gone to, 
Jim was forbidden from using his computer or seeing Robert for at least a month. Officers had arrived just moments after Roxana called for help. They spent the following three days searching the house for potential evidence. Altogether, investigators collected 105 items they thought may be important for the investigation. These included a wine glass, various post-it notes, a cell phone, a Rolodex, 12 volumes of blood-spattered German encyclopedia, a laptop, and a desktop computer. Forensic investigators could see that there were five partial bloody boot prints, as well as 19 partial or complete finger and palm prints. Investigators took swabs of five other drops of what appeared to be blood, as well as combing the rugs for hairs. In the meantime, the medical examiner conducted the autopsy and confirmed that Half's cause of death was, quote, multiple stab wounds with injuries of airway, heart and lung, unquote. And Susanna's cause of death was, quote, multiple stab wounds with injuries of skull, brain, major vessel, thyroid cartilage airway, intestine and spleen, unquote. The medical examiner concluded that their deaths had occurred within seconds or minutes of their injuries. Detectives continued to interview both Susanna and Half's wider circle of friends, as well as colleagues, students, and anyone who may have had contact with the pair over the last few months of their lives. Meanwhile, results from the forensic testing performed on the bloody shoe prints from the crime scene came back to two of them matching a boot made by a company called Vask Footwear, specifically a size 11 or 11 and a half alpha sole boot. After forensic investigators had thoroughly documented and removed any evidence at the crime scene, they then got a locksmith to change the locks and had a security company change the alarm code, as well as placing yellow crime scene tape around the house. One week after the murders, a memorial service was held nearby at Rollins Chapel in Dartmouth. Over 700 students, professors, friends and family members made their way into the chapel as the Dartmouth president addressed the crowd of people. Quote, We learned much from their lives and we benefited. Be free, good friends, be at peace. Unquote. Many people decided to speak over the course of the service, including a number of friends who were also professors at Dartmouth. One of the couple's closest friends, Herb, said, quote, When we were with them, we felt safe and taken care of. There was gentleness and grace, and both of them made time disappear on each occasion that we were with them. And I felt that I became a better person, more patient, more compassionate, more understanding and more committed to social justice. Unquote. At the end of the service, Half and Susanna's two daughters, Veronica and Mariana, each held a lit candle and encouraged other family members, friends, 
colleagues and students to join them in creating a circle of light, something they said was an act to symbolise how their parents illuminated the lives of those who they knew and loved. With a potential threat to the close community of Etna in Hanover, a number of people began to wonder why this had happened in the small, close-knit town. Perhaps the murderer could be a disgruntled student, someone who had specifically targeted Health and Susanna. During the initial few days and weeks following the murders, the Hanover Police Department and New Hampshire Attorney General kept any information they had about potential motives or killers on the down low. The information given to the community was mainly to keep calm and not to panic, although it was acknowledged that at that point there were no suspects in custody and the district attorney's office decided not to release any information about how the couple had been killed. Eventually, however, after pressure from both close friends of Susanna and Halfs, as well as the media, it was revealed that the couple had been stabbed to death and that they were probably killed by someone they knew or at least trusted enough to allow into their home. Finally, a public warning was given by the district attorney's office. Quote, The person who did this, who may or may not be watching this, should take no comfort in the fact that they have not yet been apprehended. Be patient. We'll be there. Unquote. It was also requested that the public be on the lookout and keep aware of anyone who had recently changed or exhibited suspicious behaviour, such as becoming absent from work or changing their sleeping patterns, becoming nervous or irritable, or having an unusual interest in the case. Over the coming weeks, the Dartmouth and Hanover communities became more and more worried and frustrated. Anger began bubbling under the surface, and close friends of Susanna and Half were wondering if the police department were just stalling and struggling by all means to actually identify any suspects. It was immediately clear to investigating officers that the knife sheaths were their best option in terms of tracing the killers. It wasn't long before investigators concluded that due to the fact there had been two sheaths, there were likely two or more killers. On further investigation, officers identified the sheaths hadn't been on the market for very long at all. They also concluded that they were designed to fit a specific type of knife, an SOG SEAL 2000, with the sheaths found also having a small SOG logo stamp on the back, which had only been in production since March of 2000. This meant that the killer or killers must have brought the knives and sheaths sometime in the 10 months leading up to the murders. Unfortunately, on further investigation, officers discovered that the SOG SEAL 2000 knife was actually the company's most popular item, which of course made the task of finding and identifying the killer or killers through connection with the sale much trickier. Unlike guns, knives didn't require a serial number, so again made connection and identification even harder. 
SOG provided the officers with a list of all sales accounts and all mail order catalogues that carried the SEAL 2000, as well as a list of merchants in the New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, Arizona, Connecticut and New York areas. The lead detectives then called the sellers and asked if they had sold any SOG SEAL 2000s with the specific sheaths since March of 2000. Anyone that said they had was then asked if they kept a record of buyers and then if they had ever sold more than one to a buyer. The lists were long and the task seemed to be never-ending but on one read of the list the lead detective came across one buyer who had bought two knives at the same time. The detective was particularly interested when he realised that the knives had been ordered just four weeks before the murders and the buyer lived in Hanover, just over 40 miles from Susanna and Half's house. The buyer's name was Jim Parker and to the officer's surprise was just 16 years old. Just before 7pm that evening, officers arrived at Jim's house and knocked on the door. Jim's father John answered and invited the officers inside. They made him aware that they needed to talk to his son about a set of SOG SEAL knives purchases. He told the officers he wasn't aware of any knives his son had bought, but told them they had nothing to hide, so the officers could of course come in. Once sat down at the kitchen table, with Jim in front of them, one of the officers asked him where he had bought the knives from in the first place, to which he responded, the Fox Firearms. They then asked Jim why he had bought them, to which he told them to use with his friend Robert. They were planning to use them for camping, to cut branches and build forts, but they proved to be too difficult to carry, so they decided to sell them on. When asked who he'd sold them to, Jim said that in January, he and Robert had driven to Burlington and went to the Army-Navy store to sell them. He added that the man behind the counter didn't want to buy them. However, one of the customers in the store had overheard the conversation and offered $60 each for them. One of the officers asked Jim what the buyer had looked like. Jim said he had black hair and was probably in his 30s. He added that he hadn't heard about the murders in the nearby Dartmouth until one of the officers brought it up. He then asked again about the identity of the buyer, to which Jim replied that he had brown hair and was probably in his 30s. His description was different than before. The officer noticed this discrepancy but decided that it was highly unlikely the 16-year-old teenager sat in front of him had callously killed two people in cold blood. He thought the more likely reason for the inconsistencies would be that Jim's involvement was likely very small, and in fact he was probably just scared of the real killer, and the fact he may be in trouble for supplying the knives used. Officers then asked if Jim would be okay to come down to the station and have his fingerprints taken to compare with evidence from the murder scene. Jim agreed, and he and his father John followed the officer's patrol car over to the station. 
On the way over, John asked if Jim had done something, to which Jim replied that he hadn't, and he was just really scared about the whole thing. John told him not to worry and just tell the officers what he knew. After making a written statement to police, which included the description again of a very vaguely ordinary looking white man, one of the officers told Jim he didn't believe he was being 100% truthful and that he knew it was probably just because he was scared but he did need to know the truth. Jim, however, stuck to his story so the officers decided to change their tactic. They thanked Jim for his help and made their way back to the car. The officers then made the short journey over to Robert's house. As the car pulled up, Robert's parents Diane and Mike paused the video they were watching and Diane opened the door to see what the officers wanted. They said they had just spoken to Jim Parker about two SOG seal knives he'd purchased and that they now needed to speak to Robert about those knives. Diane informed the officers that Robert was upstairs sleeping as he thought he was coming down with the flu, but agreed to wake him up and see if he could help. Robert came downstairs and immediately agreed to talk to the officers. Robert corroborated Jim's version of events regarding travelling to Burlington and selling the knives because they were too big and heavy. He wasn't able to confirm the dates or the identity of the buyer as he said Jim had handled the sale. One officer asked if Robert would be willing to come down to the station to give his fingerprints for comparison, to which he agreed. The officer then asked Robert if he could take a look at any shoes he owned. Robert said he could, and brought through a pair of Nike trainers and a pair of hiking boots. One of the officers asked what make the hiking boots were, and Robert told him they were Vasque the same make as the bloody footprint found at the crime scene. The same officer asked if he could take the boots away with him. Robert agreed, but said that he would need them back as soon as possible because of the cold weather. The officer agreed on the provision that they didn't match the bloody footprint found at the crime scene. And with that, he bagged the boots and headed back to the station, with Robert and his parents following closely behind. After both Robert and Jim were separately fingerprinted and gave their DNA, they were allowed to return home with their parents. Later that evening, Jim and Robert spoke on AOL Messenger and on the phone, despite both their parents' instructions that they weren't to contact one another. Jim called Robert and agreed that they would meet at Red Ass, which, because of the worry of their phones being tapped, was code for a house near Beacon Hill. The boys packed their rucksacks full of essentials, including a compass, fishing hooks, cans of tomato soup, a Boy Scouts handbook, a camping axe, chapstick, pens, duct tape, matches and torches. Jim scribbled a note to his parents, quote, I just had to talk to Robert alone. I will be back in the morning. Don't call cops, unquote. He left the house a little after 3am on that cold February morning 
and made his way to meet Robert. The pair met at the agreed place, but Robert immediately realised he had forgotten to pack the two SOG seal knives. They were still at home, and no doubt when his parents discovered he was gone and the police searched his room, they would find the murder weapons and they would be forever connected to the murders. It wasn't worth the risk to turn back. They were escaping anyway. They decided they were better off leaving them behind. The pair made their way to a truck stop and ditched Jim's car there. They knew the police would be looking for the silver Audi, so decided to hitchhike their way further out of Chelsea. Meanwhile, the boys' parents had discovered their absence from the home and after waiting until late morning, called the police. Officers made their way to the boys' school to check if they were there. The school's principal told officers they were both absent. One officer told the principal that if they turned up, the school should be locked and they shouldn't be allowed inside. The police should be called immediately. In such a tight-knit community as Hanover, it was unusual to have such police presence outside of the high school and both of Robert and Jim's family homes, and people were beginning to talk. A little after 10pm that same evening, forensic vans and officers headed to Robert's house, and a separate convoy of police vehicles, including forensic detectives, headed to Jim's house. By this point, any move that any one of Robert and Jim's family neighbours made was monitored and tracked by police. They needed to make sure they weren't in contact with the boys. The next evening, at around 5pm, it was confirmed that a fingerprint taken from one of the sheaths found at the crime scene had matched Jim's fingerprint. It didn't take long for investigators to locate the two SOG seal knives, wrapped in duct tape and hidden under comic books inside of a cardboard box. Meanwhile, Robert and Jim had hitched a ride with a married couple, Rowdy and Nancy Tucker. The couple had two young daughters of their own, and Nancy especially had taken sympathy on the two boys, who gave their names as Sam and Tyler. They told the Tuckers that they were making their way to California in order to find jobs on boats. The Tuckers offered the boys a ride, and soon after, they were all on the road on their way to Sturbridge. The two boys were then dropped off in Columbia, New Jersey, before managing to hitch another ride with a trucker called James Hicks. James had two teenage sons himself and had just lost his third son at just 14 years old in a motorbike accident. James agreed the two boys could ride with him. Robert and Jim made themselves comfortable and fell asleep in the truck. By the time they woke up, it was hours later and time for them to part from James Hicks. He gave the teenagers $10 each for some breakfast and called over the radio to see if any other truckers nearby could offer the boys a ride. To the boys' surprise, a voice did radio back saying to drop the boys at a fuel desk and that trucker could give them a ride. 
after dropping the boys at the fuel station, they waited. They felt the presence of a car pull up, and as they turned, they saw two police officers approaching them. The officers told them to separate, and then asked Jim for his name. Jim responded Tyler J. Jones, and said the J stood for Jeffrey. When Robert was asked for his date of birth, he panicked and said the 40th of March 1982. He quickly corrected himself, but it was too late. And by this point, the boys knew it. Robert had heard the name Robert Tullock over the radio, and he told the officer that was him. The voice over the radio that had agreed to give the boys a ride from the fuel station was in fact another police officer who had suspected the two boys could have been Jim and Robert. Both of them were arrested and taken back to Henry County Jail in Indiana. Whilst in the interview room, an FBI agent spoke to Robert. He told him that he was going to leave the room and send his parents in. He also told Robert that the cameras and microphones would be turned off for he and his parents to have some privacy. Once the FBI agent left, however, Robert mistakenly assumed the cameras and microphones had already been turned off. The recorded footage showed Robert saying, quote, Jim, I'm so sorry. Maybe if I'd used my brain a little more. So sorry for everything. I'm so sorry. Unquote. And then he broke down in tears. Even following numerous family interviews and the mounting evidence, the community of Chelsea struggled to believe these two teenage boys could actually be capable of two murders that were seemingly random. Although the physical evidence was becoming clearer, the motives escaped all onlookers and detectives. Both Jim and Robert seemingly had no connection to Half and Susanna, or even the area around Trescott Road. Robert was taken to a maximum security prison, where he was placed in a cell with an undercover officer in an attempt to shed some light on why he had committed the murders. The undercover officer even told Robert his name was Jim, to which Robert seemed touched and said he had a friend called Jim. However, after a considerable amount of time together, the undercover officer didn't manage to get any information out of Robert. In the meantime, Robert began to settle and feel more comfortable in the maximum security unit. He got into a number of physical altercations with other inmates, especially focusing on anyone he thought was scrawny or vulnerable. Robert also made unlawful contact with his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Christina. She was to be called as a witness at trial, and so contact between the two of them was not allowed. However, Robert ignored this and would send letters to another friend with their name spelt incorrectly. That was code that the letter was to be passed on to Christina. Jim was placed in a juvenile jail, and when he turned 17, was transferred to a different jail in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. Jim generally kept himself to himself and studied for his high school diploma, alongside practicing hours of yoga each day. During Robert's time in jail before the trial, 
he confided in a fellow inmate a few details about the crime, including the fact he hadn't murdered anyone before, and he had meant to kill Susanna and Half's neighbours, but they weren't in. He also confided that they had stolen Half's wallet, something verifiable with investigators, but information that hadn't been made public knowledge. The same inmate told officers that Robert had said that the attack was random and there was no connection between him or Jim and Susanna and Half. He added that they'd gained entry by giving the pretense of an environmental survey and that they'd wanted to kill and rob someone but ultimately panicked after the murders and therefore didn't take anything of much value from the house. The difficulty in the legal sense came with proving first-degree murder. Despite the abundance of evidence against the boys, they were both young and didn't have a history of violence. They were good students, with no taste for drugs or alcohol, and generally spent their time playing frisbee or rock climbing. The most damning character references were in regard to their arrogance or attention-seeking habits, and there wasn't much else. It came to light that the need for the $10,000 starting pot was to allow them to travel and set up their lives elsewhere. They would then ditch normal life and start living off the land, eradicating any need to make money like ordinary people. Robert suggested stealing cars and joyriding, but Jim wasn't keen. Robert told Jim it would be fine, and attempted to convince him one afternoon when the pair came across a truck with the keys still inside. The boys got inside and began to drive, but the truck driver saw Robert had gotten into the driver's seat and blocked him off at the exit. Robert knew the truck driver hadn't yet seen Jim, so told him to jump out of the truck and hide. He would take the fall for the both of them. Afterwards, Robert told Jim he'd been fined $1,200 and had been given community service. Jim felt awful. He knew Robert and his family couldn't afford the $1,200 fine and from there on in began to feel indebted to Robert. The truth was, Robert had lied to Jim. There was no fine and no community service, just a verbal warning. It was just coming up to Christmas time in 2001 when Jim decided to agree to a plea bargain. The last 10 months had been a back and forth with Jim's attorneys, attempting to keep his case in the juvenile system where he would be released at 21 years of age, even if he was convicted of murder. Prosecutors, of course, fought against this and said both Jim and Robert should be tried as adults. There was no fear of the death penalty for the pair as due to their young ages that had been dismissed early on. The plea deal meant that Jim would plead guilty to being an accomplice to second degree murder and would cooperate with investigators as well as agreeing to testify at Robert's trial. New Hampshire law at the time, as reported by Mitchell Zuckoff and Dick Lair who wrote Judgment Ridge, one of the sources for this episode, meant that this deal meant Jim could seek to have his sentence reduced by a third, meaning that his minimum sentence could be just under 17 years. 
As part of the deal, Jim was asked to walk detectives through his and Robert's criminal behaviour leading up to the murders. This included the truck joyride, stealing post, and breaking into houses, none of which either of the boys had ever been prosecuted or punished for. Jim then gave a detailed account of what exactly had happened on the day of the murders. The plan after that was for Jim to be a witness at Robert's trial and convince the jury that Robert was not only guilty of the murders, but was also the ringleader. However, just three months after Jim's detailed account and statement to police, Robert shocked everyone by agreeing to plead guilty therefore removing the need for a trial. Up until the moment Robert informed his attorneys he would be pleading guilty, the whole build-up to the trial had been centred around an insanity defence. The reason Robert gave for pleading guilty was that he supposedly wanted to spare his family the trauma of a trial. The result of this guilty plea was a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for Robert. Both Robert and Jim would have to make their admissions in open court, and the differences in the approaches were stunning. Jim cried the whole way through, asking specifically to address Veronica and Mariana, stating how sorry he was for what he'd done. In stark contrast, the Boston Globe reported that Robert, quote, locked eyes with the sisters and the Zantop's friends in the courtroom. He wore a faint smirk throughout his hearing, showed no remorse, and did not make a statement. Robert's case came under review after the court ruled in another case that mandatory sentencing to life without parole was unconstitutional for minors. In 2014, the New Hampshire Supreme Court ruled that Robert's case would be reviewed for resentencing but from the information and records I could find, no date has yet been set for that. In 2019, Jim asked for an early release from prison. However, soon after, Jim actually withdrew his appeal and will remain in prison until at least 2024. At the original court appearances, Mariana addressed Robert, quote, My father's name was Hauf, which in German means to help. My father lived up to his name, that their desire to help, to teach, and to open their home to perfect strangers was abused in such a horrific way, makes their deaths seem like the greatest violation. Rather than focus on the inhumanity and monstrosity and the sheer stupidity of their brutal and senseless deaths, I've tried to console myself by trying to perpetuate the essence of my parents. Two people with true open-heartedness and generosity, who fought for positive change, and my sister and I will continue that fight. Unquote. Irene, a close friend of both Susanna and Hauf's, spoke in court, addressing Jim. Quote, This is about two beautiful human beings who showered love and affection on each other, their families, and on the people they came into contact with. 
This is about two people who love to take walks, teach their classes, write books, go to the movies, have barbecues with their friends, talk to their daughters on the telephone and help everyone they met, including you. This is about Half and Susanna Zantop, who loved life. With many thanks to our brand new Patreons, Jem Smith, Natalie G, Leslie Carloff, Brooke Browning Lima, Wendy Kobe Lars Chalvada, Jill Ostro, and Eileen Gluncy. We honestly are so grateful for your support, and we're working hard to keep bringing you extra content every month. Here's a sneak peek from our latest episode on sorcery violence. Another way to tell a witch from a non-witch would be witch's marks, such as moles, birthmarks or scars. These marks were believed to be the work of the devil, permanently marking his to ensure their loyalty. The accused witches were stripped and publicly examined. Oftentimes they were shaved completely to make sure they weren't hiding anything. In an attempt to disguise supposed witches' marks, people would often try to cut off or burn any marks on their bodies. However, this rarely worked, as often the accused's burn marks or cut wounds would be used as proof of devil markings. It often didn't matter if the accused's skin was completely free of marks, if there were still suspicions. They would often be pricked with needles or pins until an insensitive area was found. If the accused didn't bleed or feel pain, she was a quote cold and insensitive witch. Suffice it to say, these witch trials resulting in the accused being hanged or burned at the stake soon became an unacceptable form of punishment and in the West, the suspicion and belief in witchcraft and sorcery began to die out. This, however, was not the case in places all around the world, including Uganda, Indonesia, Colombia, Nepal, India, Papua New Guinea and many more. In some of these countries, not only is sorcery very much believed in and a part of life, but people are still being murdered by townspeople from all over, coming together to get rid of these suspected witches, with no proof, no trial, and often no consequences. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.